This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Students these days are skeptical of authorities, so why are they so bad at being skeptical of what they read on the internet? Our teachers say there are strategies to get kids to be better digital media consumers. Plus, in-school suspensions, do they work? Our teachers think generally not, so why do we keep giving them? And is saying the F word ever acceptable in class? You may be surprised what our teachers think. Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined as always by a group of hardworking educators who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Kirsten Brown, you're back again. What do you do in education? Yes, I am the founding principal of Crossroads High School. And Jason Staliga, what do you teach? I'm an honors physics, biology, and chemistry teacher at a local high school. And Bakari Akuu, you're back. Second back week in a row, year, I should yeah. say. Uh, uh, what do you do in education? Middle school assistant principal. So we have two administrators in the house today that will affect the topics we talk about. One or two tap their expertise a bit. All three of them are educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Who is giving us the information we read online? That was one of the central, if underlying, questions of two days' worth of hearings recently on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers grilled lawyers from Facebook, Google, and Twitter in three separate hearings over how Russia was able to use the tech giant's platforms to manipulate and influence American voters during the 2016 election. It emerged that between Facebook and Instagram, nearly 150 million Americans, that's roughly half the country, saw Russian-bought posts and ads. Some 29 million Americans liked a Russian-backed page, and about 3 million followed a Russian-backed page. The Guardian reports that Russia-linked groups bought and distributed ads through these tech platforms that targeted liberals and conservatives with divisive topics, including LGBT issues, police brutality, immigration, and race relations. For instance, one ad falsely accused Black Lives Matter of an attack on police. Another advertised a Not My President rally against Donald Trump that garnered responses from about 50,000 people. All of this was done largely without social media users knowing who was behind the content they were consuming. And that is where we link this topic to education. With the experience of the election and social media's role in it extremely fresh, it's becoming an increasingly urgent priority for educators to deal with media literacy, that is, teaching kids how to consume content online to avoid the pitfalls of what is now broadly termed fake news. Well, how can this be done? A new working paper by the Stanford History Education Group may offer some answers. The authors of this report, their names are Sam Weinberg and Sarah McGrew, they wanted to see how experienced fact-checkers determine the credibility of digital information. So they sampled 45 individuals in three separate groups, 10 professional fact-checkers, people who work for news organizations and publishing houses whose job it is to get facts right, 10 historians with PhDs, many of them professors, and 25 undergraduate students at Stanford University. The researchers found that by and large, both the undergraduate students and the professional historians both had trouble discerning the reliability of websites. They were, as the report says, quote, easily manipulated by features of websites such as official-looking logos and domain names. They read vertically, staying within a website to evaluate its reliability. 
end quote. In contrast, professional fact-checkers seemed to take a perpetually skeptical approach to what they were reading. The report says they understood the web as a maze filled with trap doors and blind alleys. The report goes on to say instead of reading vertically, the fact-checkers read laterally. That is, they would leave a site after a quick scan, open up a new browser tab, and judge the credibility of the website they had just left. So the authors write there is often the presumption that young people, so-called digital natives, because they spend so much time online, know how to assess information they see there. But the report says students, it turns out, struggle with nearly every aspect of gathering and evaluating information online. We can talk more about the details of this study. It's very interesting reading, but let's bring our teachers and educators into this now. I suspect you're not surprised by these results. You work with students every day. We've talked before on this podcast about how students struggle to assess the reliability of sources online. So does knowing how professional fact-checkers consume online information, having read this study now, does that give you hope? Can these skills um, that you've read about in this study, can they be taught and transferred to high school kids? You all work with, with secondary level kids? Does it offer some kind of hope? (laughs) I think it definitely does. I think it provides um, some really clear strategies that can be implemented in the classroom to help students discern what is reliable and what's not reliable. I think one in particular is teaching students how to read laterally in order to assess the So the the idea of like actually stopping what you're doing Mm -hmm. on one website, open up a new browser, go check a fact or something you read or the the validity of an organization. I mean, it seems like maybe there, there aren't you're kind of you're lacking in concrete strategies right now to teach students how to consume digital media. Is that true? Or do you feel kind of at a loss right now? I mean, I remember when I was in the classroom, we, even in sixth grade, fourth grade, we always talked about the rea- reliability of our sources. So I don't think this is a new concept. I definitely think that in the age of the people who are um, proclaiming unreliable facts, are, it, it makes it more complicated and more difficult because when you can't rely on the president of the United States to tell a true fact or a true story, then it makes it more, it makes it a lot grayer when we talk about reliability and, and truthfulness in reporting. Yeah, Jason, what do you think? <clears throat> I think also, too, it's, uh, I was thinking about, like, forums that I do, like, I will give them an article and then I'll have them read that article and then I'll list three or four different articles underneath that, like sub, like sub-articles so that they could go back and it's either somehow related to that article or it's a contrary point to that article so that they can kind of understand both sides of the story. So it's kind of like how are you framing how are you framing your assignments and then how are you showing them so that they can see that there are multiple viewpoints. Right. So, it's, so it sounds like you were providing the students with these articles. Mm-hmm. Um, did you do any type of lesson or any type of teaching around like what makes this – the source that you're reading, what makes this a valid, reliable, believable source? Uh, that I did not. I used – typical, normal right. websites like the New York Times or NPR. Well, if you listen oh. to certain people, those are not reliable sources. <laughs> no. uh, you're talking about stuff that you you work on in class, again, uh, readings that you give them, but your students, um, all three of you, I'm sure, have students who, who do work independently or just, you know, troll around on the internet on their own. So I'm sure they come in with all kinds of misconceptions, untruths, uh, they're misled in various ways. Alternative facts. Alternative <laughs> facts. Uh, so what are you noticing? What, what do they come in... What are they poor on when it comes to uh, assessing the information, the reliability of the information that they read online? What are they What are they bad at? What do they need improvement on? That so they think anything they Google, the first three results are automatically true. So they never, they rarely, I should say, um, dig deeper to actually uh, 
determine the validity of what they're reading. So if they figure that if it's on the internet or if it's on Google, then it must be accurate. The so they're, says, they're kind of allowing Google to do the critical thinking for exactly, them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's a couple of times you've mentioned that now. So um, if someone in a, in a position of power who, I, I guess, traditionally you take their person or their office or their organization as truthful, they might not always get the facts right, but you kind of take their authority as 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 well-intentioned, truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you've both mentioned, uh, in the current climate, that's not happening as much as it used to. How does that affect your students? Like, how, do, uh, how does that actually uh, bleed down to your students in classes where um, someone's standing at a White House lecture and says something that is literally false um, and repeats things that have been proven to be lies? How does that affect your students? I think kids are more skeptical now. Like, they have, like, I don't, they're not, taking things at face value, but I don't know if they're actually, they have the skills to think critically to discern what is fact and what isn't. Right. So that's interesting. So you say they're more skeptical, uh-huh. but at the same time, I think what this the Stanford study would say is they need to be more skeptical when they're online, but you're saying they're not applying that skepticism to the actual, like, things that they're reading or researching. Does that ring true with Jason and, and Bakari? I would say so. Again, it goes back to, I think, it's like a double-sided coin here because in one notion, they are a lot more skeptical at the same time. It's like, well, if I saw it on the Internet, then it must be true. And so it's like I'm hearing it from my teacher telling me something different, but the Internet is telling me this. Well, I Googled it, so it's on the Internet, so then it must be true. And oftentimes it's either, it could be quotes from people and that sort of thing. And so I think that um, we find ourselves, again, in that very great area. For me, I mean, I've always taught my kids to question everything. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I definitely have always taught my students to, to question more so they can learn uh, more about the world and get to the root of, of why things are framed a certain way and, and the perspectives that are presented as fact. I mean, when we talk about American history, uh, particularly, that is an area where I often tell them to question because we only get one dominant narrative. And so I think that we this is creating a greater opportunity for us to really um, analyze the narratives that we put in front of people, in front of our students, and the perspectives that we're offering around certain topics. Uh, I think what's interesting yeah. with my students is they, uh, um, certain people who now hold higher offices, they just take it as oh they're lying anyways, and they ignore it. And so there's not even like that ability to interpret what they're saying because their automatic thought is, well that's probably not true anyways, and they just go on with their. Is lives. that a good or bad thing? Uh, from an educator's perspective. Well, from an educator's perspective, I. It's good for the questioning aspect of it, but it's bad for the complacency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really bad if you think about it in terms of a, a global and a more cultural like sense of self. Like if, if, if a student's you're now forgetting that the person who holds what may be one of the highest offices in the land is not thought of or respected, like how does that, how does that transpire to them as they move forward? Uh, what I haven't seen, which I think is really interesting in the classroom, is they, don't, they still don't question authority. Which I think is really interesting. Like if you if you have this, you know, this American perspective of I'm not going to necessarily believe my leader now of this free country. I think if anything, for our, my students, it, it it has sparked a lot more questioning of authority and a lot more pushback of why are we doing it this way? This doesn't make sense. I don't agree with this because uh, of what they're seeing at the national level. I think it's a combination of just. This whole millennial piece of this is not the way that I want it to be. Well, kids are not millennials. I don't know what they're called. What are the kids called now? Mm, that's a good question. There, there's a different name for them. Well, whatever the case is. I Generation think, Z, maybe? Right. <laughs> I, I think know. that actually may be it. Yeah. Um, but they have this notion of, 
One, they don't believe anything that comes out of our president's mouth, generally speaking. I teach black and brown children, so they they automatically assume that he's lying. Um, but then there is this notion of they've seen so many examples of people who did not finish school, who have not gone, gotten traditional education, who are extremely successful. And so their thoughts are, well, if I don't agree with this system or I don't agree with this moment or this class, then I can be just as successful without having to go the traditional route. And so they're really questioning the systemic pieces of what we con- what we consider as traditional education. They no longer buy it hook, line, and sinker. That People have bachelor's and, and master's degrees who are not at the level of success that they think they should be. And so they're just... They haven't. My students do not uh, wholeheartedly buy into the traditional mm. education system anymore. Getting back to this idea of, of teaching fake news, uh, teaching media literacy, um, this comes at the same time that Italy, the country Italy, is piloting a, a media literacy curriculum nationwide. Eight thousand schools in that country actually partnering with Facebook, so you can make your judgments there. But, um, trying to teach um, kids to critically analyze disinformation, fake news, as they're calling it as well. Um, do you think, um, you know, obviously there's no national curriculum in the United States, but your state or your district or your school um, should have a media literacy curriculum or do you already or do you feel like there should be a more concerted effort to to teach the skills like that that were contained in the Stanford study? Or do you have time to? <laughs> I, I definitely think those skills need to be taught very intentionally, but I don't think you need this separate course to do so. It should not be taught in isolation because mm-hmm. I could see like in a social studies class or an English class, in any really any class, you can implement those strategies and help kids gain those skills. And I think it's more impactful and meaningful if they do it within a way where it's not like you're just doing it in this this specific digital literacy class. They need to make sure they understand it transferable. Does it, I, then I guess just results like the 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 Stanford study, does it, I guess, put more fire to the notion that students do need to be taught critical thinking skills more broadly as opposed to just saying, you know, you need to know fake news. I mean, it's, it's, it's bigger Agreed. than that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like, and I think it's always been bigger than that. I feel like this moment that we exist in, that this conversation around fake news is happening because of the political climate. But even before then, again, it has always been an expectation. There's always been a desire for students to be engaging in critical thinking skills and critical thinking activities. And I th- as I said, when I was in the classroom, and even in elementary, we're teaching our students to question and to justify and analyze. And if we're not doing that, then we're missing a mark. I think we get to this place because people have not been doing that effectively. So I think the conversation is now about how do we do that effectively and more consistently versus do we need to do it at all? I think we've always agreed that we need to be doing it. Now it's at a point where we're saying how effective have we been at doing it. Right. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, as I mentioned at the start, we have two administrators with us today on the panel, so we thought we would take advantage of their expertise. So our next two topics deal with discipline and behavior in school in their own different ways. First, does suspending students' work, does it serve a greater purpose than simply getting kids out of a classroom setting? The Cleveland School District for the past decade or so has essentially answered no to those questions. The district ditched in-school suspensions about 10 years ago and instituted instead what are called planning centers at each school. This was featured recently in Ed Week, which is how we um, came across it, came to our attention. 
Uh, as a district brochure explains, these planning centers are a, quote, alternative space within the school to provide a temporary cooling down period as well as provide intervention, alternative coping strategies, and resources for students. The centers are staffed by a full-time planning center aide, as they're called, as well as support staff who can lead students through uh, circle discussions, impromptu counseling sessions, facilitate meetings between students who have conflicts with each other, um, so on and so forth. Not only has the district completely dropped the use of in-school suspensions in favor of these planning centers, but in the past five years, Cleveland's out-of-school suspension rate has also dropped by 50%. Suspensions are one of those weird things in education. Many teachers acknowledge they don't work, yet they are still one of the most common methods for disciplining students, especially repeat offenders. Now it does vary from district to district, of course. The Duke University School of Law said that in the 2013-14 school year, for example, 3.8 million students nationwide were suspended in or out of school. And since Duke is in North Carolina, it also gave the North Carolina state figures in that state that year. Students missed collectively 650,000 days of school due to suspension. Well, the tide may be turning. The Brookings Institute Brown Center on American Education highlights California, for instance. Out-of-school suspension rates in that state fell between 2012 and 2015 by nearly 38 percent statewide. Even with that overall decline, the Brown Center says racial disparities among groups suspended persisted. The suspension rate in 2015 for African-American students in California was 17.8, while it was 5.2 for Hispanics, 4.4 for whites, and 1.2 for Asian-American students. Even here in Kansas City, where no wrong answers is state, the suspension rate has gone down, but racial disparities persist. Black students in Kansas City are more likely to get suspended. They make up 40% of the district's population, but three-quarters of suspended students. Black students in Kansas City are also more likely to be suspended out of school, and the average length of their suspensions is likely to be longer. So first, what do you think of uh, the strategy Cleveland is using? Would it work at your school? Uh, This idea of ditching in-school suspension, having something like a planning center, which maybe in some ways sounds like an in-school suspension, but but might might be putting more resources towards actually talking or arbitrating or, or mediating. But, yeah, that was my initial thought. I said this sounds exactly like an effective in-school suspension with a different name. I, and I get that framing matters. So the, the way that we name and the way that we present it to students is very important. It, that can impact its success. But ultimately, this seems very similar to what I know schools have been doing and are doing um, as, re, as it relates to in-school suspension. But does taking the name away help? It does, because even at my school, we renamed it. Um, we have what we call the Refocus Center, and then we have not to give my school name away. So we have another name for, uh, we have two versions of it. So we have like a short term, which is like the calm down, cool off. You just need to have a couple periods in this room and you can go back to class. And then we have the other where you, you've made some poor choices consistently enough that it could warrant an out-of-school suspension, but in an effort to keep you in school learning and growing, that um, we put you in school suspension in a different setting. Um, so we have two versions of that, and they're both geared toward intervention and not as a consequence. Right. I, when I was in preschool, I had, we had the cool-off box. It was literally a cardboard <laughs> box painted like an ice, oh, wow. like an igloo. <laughs> <laughs> now, in most classrooms, um, or in some classrooms, I should say, there's like the safety. So, like, that's the first step to the intervention, that you are making poor choice. You need to be separated from the entire class. So you, you're, still you're still in the, room, in the classroom. Right, yeah. you're still in the room in a safe seat. Um, and then, like, I would consider our refocus uh, room would be like the version, our school version of the safe seat. Yeah. There are a lot of steps that you're trying there, – there are a lot of hurdles you're trying to put in place before a student gets to the suspension right, level. Yeah. Like it seems like you're trying to, to stop that process from happening before it gets to the, the level where a student would need to theoretically be mm-hmm. suspended. Why? 
Why, why is that? Why is that your focus? Why is that the case? Yeah, I think it's just we want kids in class as much as possible. We don't want them missing instructional time. We know that when students are suspended the first time, like the more likely they are to drop out and then fall into the school to prison pipeline. We don't want that to be the reality for our kids. So as many hurdles we can put in place to deter that from happening, we're going to do it. Jason, what is the classroom view? What, what do you what does your school do and what do you what kind of su- supports are you looking for as a teacher in terms of, of students who either need to be in or out of class, and what, what's your perspective? Well, I, the thing that's really infuriating about in-school suspension is that it's always our high-risk kids. It's always the same kids that are going to get suspended from day one to day three, and it's for what I think is, I mean, it's for reasons that they shouldn't be suspended for. Uh, give me an example. Give me kid, some examples. Okay, kid, 11 tardies to, to a classroom. You know, a kid's late five seconds to class. I have to mark this kid tardy. Now, I would love to say that I have that autonomy to not mark that kid tardy, but if I do that, then it becomes a school-wide system. So you, you, can't, you can't alter that. So let's say someone showed up late today, right? Um, I mean, they're not going to get in trouble for showing up late. And if a kid walks in five seconds after the bell, I haven't started my instruction. Most teachers have bell work. That kid go, kid go, could go right to a seat and sit down and start the work. But, but, you say, yeah. but you're saying you don't have that discretion. We don't. We don't have that. You, I mean, you, don't, we, feel, you don't feel you have that discretion. Again, it goes back to a system, right? right. If, if, if you as a teacher say, all right, I'm going to allow it, because this happened like two or three years ago. So-and-so allowed it, and they could, kids could come in late all the time. So then it becomes, oh, why don't you allow me to come in late all the time? And so then it starts pitting one teacher after another teacher, or students are trying to pit a teacher after another teacher. Right. You, can't, you can't have that. So as an educator, you have to follow the policies of the school. Now, you can advocate for changes in that policy as, as a school leader, um, but, you know, we're set up, I think, with like nine, nine to 11 tardies, they get, they get one day of in-school suspension. On the 12th one, it's another day of in-school suspension. On the third one, then it's a phone call home, and then maybe eventually it's OSS for, for tardies. I would say that the majority of our suspensions are simply due to tardies or dress code. And you think to yourself, I had this one kid who's, who's failing my class, and he was, in, he was in ISS three of five days. And he's like, I can't get caught up. And I'm like, I understand that you can't get caught up. Because you're downstairs and in school suspension. And so I could send the work down, but as, as Kirsten said, you're missing what is the most important piece, which is the instruction and the interaction you have with the teacher. Have, uh, Jason was naming a problem, right? I mean, he feels, at least within his district, compelled to kind of follow the dictates of a system, um, even though he kind of, I think, I'm, I'm inferring from your, from what you were saying that you often don't think that a student should be suspended or out of your class. So what's the what's the best solution to that if teachers don't feel like they, I don't know, change the system or allow teachers more flexibility? Yeah, so one thing that I make really clear is that we teach the whole child. So it's mm-hmm. not just we're going to teach you math and English, but also if you have a specific skill missing that causes you to like have a behavior that's not okay, we have to teach that skill and teach the student how to navigate that effectively. Um, so I make that really clear for teachers. And I think we create a space every week where we collaborate around specific strategies to help students gain those skills. Mm-hmm. So if we need to kind of think differently about how we approach um, the transition time for one specific student to help them with their tardies, we're going to make that happen. To Kristen's point, that that's the teaching the whole child. Like we're in this very trauma-sensitive restorative justice phase right now in education that I think is very appropriate, and that's what we have to get to, that we if we really want to teach our students to make better choices, we have to actually teach them to make better choices and not just give them consequences for the poor choices. And suspension doesn't do that. Suspension is not a lesson being taught. Yeah. It's a consequence. It's a break from school. Mm-hmm. It's a break for the adults. It's a break for the student, but it's not a lesson at hand. Do you think oftentimes uh, teachers give referrals or 
or do things that lead to suspensions because they want they just want the kid out of the classroom? I wouldn't say oftentimes, but I think sometimes. I think sometimes it's needed. Sometimes the kid needs a break from the teacher, and the teacher needs a break from the student. I mean, we are all human, and we all get to our wits' end, and I think that it is okay to need that break, and that's the purpose of those buddy rooms and those safe seats and the refocus rooms so you can have a break without actually interrupting the student's education. Yeah. I think a lot of it, too, is uh, behavior management. And then say that. And then <laughs> say that. And then comfortability with the the children that you're teaching mm-hmm. and, un- and understanding who you are actually teaching within the classroom. Say and I think that, that those are really the two pieces that I think often lead to an increase in amount of referrals um, in, and, in and any what do you? I think I understand what you mean. What do you, mm-hmm. well, what do you mean by that, the comfortability with, well, with the, students? So, you know, as a white teacher in a predominantly black school, you know, it took me years to, to, to understand the culture of the students that I was teaching. And when I finally understood the culture that I was teaching and I started to really ask them the real questions about like, what is really happening at home and, and understanding, okay, you know, if I have any preconceived notions, which I think we talked a little bit about implicit bias before, you know, how does, how, how does that play? What is that role in the way that I work with my students? And I think when you're a new teacher coming in and you're, if you are working in a, in a school that is predominantly black or other, or other than who you are, you have, you, there is a, an adjustment to understanding the needs of those students. And, you know, we can, we can talk about education courses, but you're never really going to get a full understanding of the impact that students are going to have on your life, whether it's 20 students, 30 students, 150 students, until you actually step into it. And those strategies that you have to put into place, a lot of the time with that kid who's questioning, and that kid is questioning because maybe he, maybe he doesn't feel safe. Maybe there's a security issue. Maybe, mm-hmm. uh, maybe something happened the night before, and he's, he's lashing out because he doesn't know how to handle it. And as a teacher, you have to, you have to determine all right, is this really disrespectful behavior or does this kid, is there an issue and how can I get that kid to talk to me so I can figure out what I need to do to help that student? Well, Jason, that is a good segue because the next topic we wanted to tackle um, involves behavior that I guess could be construed as disrespectful in some contexts and in other contexts. Maybe not. There are some hard and fast rules we all remember from our own school days. No hitting others, no name-calling. No smoking on campus. No cussing in class. Well, maybe not. At Ron Brown College Prep in Washington, D.C., the no cussing rule may be a bit more flexible than many of us remember. NPR and Education Week recently did a three-part series on Ron Brown called Raising Kings. It's featured in NPR's Code Switch podcast feed, and if you have the time, I highly recommend it. The reporters Corey Turner and Kavitha Cardoza embedded themselves inside this all-boys school for a year looking at how the school's administrators and teachers are taking a different approach to educating the school's, again, mostly young black male population. A big part of the school's approach to discipline is called restorative justice. That is, avoid suspensions, avoid a traditional ladder of consequences and punitive punishments, some of the things we've been talking about already on this episode, and instead rely on talking things out, reflecting, circling up, mediating and arbitrating disputes between students and students and teachers and sometimes uh, parents and family members as well. So with that context, Ron Brown's approach to dealing with cussing may make more sense. The reporters say the teachers at Ron Brown have a, quote, tolerance for cursing. That can sometimes be shocking. High schoolers, if you didn't know this, curse a lot. And apparently the reporters heard and witnessed students cursing a lot in class, often, even using the F word repeatedly in front of their teachers. And yes, sometimes 
the teachers got frustrated, but just as often they say the teachers reacted, shall we say, a bit more magnanimously. One teacher is quoted in the report that a student cursing in class could actually be a sign of respect because it could mean the student respects the teacher enough and is comfortable enough to let the F word slip. Still, the point is made clearly in the story by at least one other teacher that's, uh, who says that students won't be able to cuss in front of their bosses in the work world and cannot get into the habit of cursing in front of their teachers. So it, it runs a, a range of reactions, but I just thought it was a good entree into a discussion about cursing in class, your experiences dealing with kids cursing, maybe even dropping the F-bomb in front of you. What do you do with that, and how do you, how do you deal with it? And are there, as this um, report indicates, differing levels of, of cursing, even with the F-word, that may or may not warrant a... a a disciplinary action. As a classroom teacher, cussing was not allowed in my room. I mean, again, I taught mostly mostly taught elementary, and so that was not something that I, I tolerated at all. As a middle school vice principal, I definitely agree that there are different layers or levels to cursing. Like there's that targeted cursing where you're cussing at a teacher or at another student, and then there's this conversational we're just talking, we're sitting in the cafeteria talking about our weekend, and I use some profane language. Um, I think they, for me, they get two different types of responses. Obviously, one requires a more stern and discipline-centered conversation, whereas another is a reminder of the setting that you're in, that that is not appropriate conversation or appropriate language for this setting. Yeah. Um, but I don't think either way it's something that should be, a kid should be getting a book thrown at them around. Um, I mean, I just literally had a conversation with a kid on Friday about their language, and he kept apologizing for using he was like, I just need a list of, like, substitute words to use, like, li- literally his own suggestion. And it's like, I think because it is such uh, a part of the vernacular now that it is difficult for kids to code switch and, and to, to switch it on and switch it off. So I think it's just reminders that there is a, a time and place for a certain type of language, and yeah. school is not the time or place for that. Kirsten, good cussing stories? <laughs> Yeah, I don't have a lot of good cussing stories, but I think that, you know, we have a similar stance where, you know, if it's targeted at someone to be, you know, disrespectful, like intentionally, then that's a different conversation where if you're just hanging out with your friends in the cafeteria, right? And so that one is not, it's kind of a reminder, like, hey, remember where you are, we're at school, we don't use that language. Um, it's, not, it's not the right place for that. You know, they can't curse at the work in the workplace, as that example that you mentioned. Yeah, so, yeah, I was going to say, so you mentioned in the previous segment mm-hmm. that you like to give rationales for yeah. what, or so what do you tell your students, what, what, are, you, what are your rationales for, for the no cursing rule? Definitely. So one is um, at work, and the, there's so, so many um, spaces within our world where that's not acceptable. It's offensive even. And even if you go to the movie theater, we have, you know, in TV shows, there are rankings like PG-13, G, whatever, based upon language used. And that just, like, is reflective of the culture and how we view cursing. And we want them to be mindful of that reality. I will say the whole workplace rationale. I work in a, I work in, in journalism. I work in a radio station. <laughs> it's uh, pretty blue mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. sometimes. So there's probably some workplaces where mm-hmm. saying the F word Yes, and probably not, probably not punished. Yeah. Yeah. Jason, good cursing stories. I yeah, I have about I have a couple from just this year alone. But uh, I start my year off by saying you can't say the two f words, the c word, or the n word, and that and that's how I frame it. That that is that is my those are my like non-negotiables. So you tell them. You tell them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very day one. I'm like that's this is just the way it's going to be. It's kind of a philosophical view for me. You know, I I look at the classroom as being these are f- people who have gone to school for 11 years or 12 years together, or 10 years together, depending on the level. And I think about how I interact with my friends, or I think about how I interact with my admin, right? And there are relationships that 
that do occur where, where you can use profanity and you, and you can relax with people. And do you allow that? Do you allow a little bit of flexibility in your classroom? If a kid's having a really bad day to be like, man, I'm having a really day, you know? And the kids say that. And, you know, you say to yourself, is that wrong? And in my mind, that's not wrong. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's an expression of self from an 18-year-old who's having a really bad day. And, I, and then we can talk about it, and the whole class can talk about it, and we can kind of figure out, okay, what's really going on in your life, and why is it a bad day? Because sometimes all they really want is someone to listen. Well, so then, yeah, I guess, well, what, what, what would you say in that moment if the kid says, I'm having a really bad effing day? Tell me about it. It's as simple as that. And I, and, but again, I'm, I'm talking like my seniors. Like right. I'm talking like these are my kids who are going off to college. If they're really having a bad day, I want to know why. Tell me. If you want to step outside and tell me, I'm good with it. I agree um, that in those moments that I would, yeah. I wouldn't try to um, temper a student's language. They're trying to express themselves, mm-hmm. and it's the best way they can express themselves. But those are often going to be the one-on-one conversations. That's not going to be a whole class conversation, and it's not going to be. So I think to your point, Jason, there is a, a time and place. I mean, there is a relationship dynamic, right? So even with your admin, you may have that relationship with your admin where you can and say those off-the-cuff type of words, whereas you're not going to do that in front of a staff meeting, but you might do that when you're sitting in their office or they're standing in your mm-hmm. classroom when it's just two of you. So I think that time and place is the, the conversation I would have with students at that point. Like, I understand you're having a rough day, but that's not the language you use whole class. Like, if we were, mm-hmm. Now, if we're having a, a sidebar and we're talking, sure, if that's how you feel in that moment, I want you to feel comfortable enough to express yourself as best you can. If that's as best you can in that moment, go for it. But I don't want it to be you to feel so comfortable that you can violate the, the space and disrespect the environment uh, of a whole group setting. And so I think that, again, it's that time and place. And, and making the comparison to the cafeteria, if they're with their friends, I'm not having the same conversation I would have with them if they slip up and say something uh, off the cuff word. Whereas if they're talking to a teacher or talking at a teacher, um, again, in front of the whole group, those are just different conversations. I think it's more about time and place as well as relationship. But to me, in the school setting, it's really that time and place. And in school, is generally not a time or a place for that type of language. We'll just have to F and see about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll have to agree to disagree. <laughs> Raw. Well, stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. What our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Kirsten, what are your kids into? Yeah, so it's I don't understand why this is happening. My little brother would do this when he was in high school like 10 years ago. But the kids do this where they're like, so, and then they say something, like this long, exaggerated so, and we're like, we're trying to get on with the lesson, and they think it's hilarious. So that's what I'm noticing. So they're intentionally doing it. It's not like, yeah. it's not like they're processing yeah. or thinking. They are they are dragging out yeah. the so. As long as possible, <laughs> as, as much as possible they do this. How long are we talking about? Like How long? ridiculously long. <laughs> like, <laughs> like 30 seconds. 30 like, seconds? They get like a deep breath and go, so, and yeah, our teachers are not a fan of this. Trend. I wouldn't be either. <laughs> so, Jason, what are your kids into? High school football playoffs. And we're also starting basketball and wrestling uh, right now. So we're transitioning from, from fall sports into winter and sports. I should say, yeah, I just read that your school is district champions. We're district champions, yeah. is correct, yeah. And so are the Rolla Dogs. <laughs> so, yeah. So you guys are still in it. We're still in it. We're moving to the uh, 16 now, yeah. 
So is this a, is this un, uncharted territory for yourself? No, we, we made it to the uh, the eight round of eight last year, the quarterfinals. Right. So we are continuing this tradition of excellence. And our last year, our, our coach was football coach of the year, high school coach of the year. Bakari, what are you kids into? Um, this week, my kids kept trying to catch me on Snapchat during the cafe. Like, so they, they can use the, their phones in the cafeteria. They're only supposed to be listening to music um, or playing games. Yet, anytime I'm walking around talking, they, they keep trying to capture me on Snapchat for some reason. They put it to, to snap you and right to have me on their Snapchat. Yeah. And so, and so what will they? What links will they go to? What are they doing? Like, I mean, they'll just call me over, and like <laughs> one person will call me over to have a conversation while someone's trying to like record the conversation. Um, sometimes I indulge and I'll like pose for them or like make a funny face behind them or something like that. But, but you sounds like you know that you're. Oh yeah, you're they, on. Uh, yeah, you're yeah. constantly on vigilant. Yeah. We had a um, a Halloween party uh, after school party last week, and ever since then, I guess they they now know that I'm pretty hip, and so oh, <laughs> they well. keep trying to capture me. Hmm. Yeah, I see so. how it is. Yeah. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Kirsten Brown, Jason Staliga, Bakari Ukuu. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodab, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Mm-hmm.